Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name is Dave Robinson. And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville, 106.5 FM. This show's about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that is important to all of us and celebrating evidence-based policy. We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science. So, let's get started. Are you ready for it? Are you ready to finally hear the top two science news stories of 2019? If you've been listening to this show the last few weeks, you're pretty well versed in the top 48 science stories of last year. Just check out our episodes of December 30th of 2019, then January 6th, January 13th of 2020 to catch up on those stories. They have been pretty mind-blowing. In fact, Bench Talk member and poet Dr. Leslie Moise was so intrigued that she recorded a more literary interpretation for us, and we'll hear from her at the end of this segment. Well, let's get going. Are you ready for the second biggest science story of 2019, as determined by Discover Magazine? What's the number two science story of last year? It's gene therapy. There's a relatively new technique, been around since 2012, for editing genes. It's called CRISPR, C-R-I-S-P-R. And basically, anything that you can do in a word processing software like Microsoft Word, you can do with CRISPR. You can delete DNA sequences. You can add DNA sequences. You can substitute DNA sequences. But the thing is, is that it's not software. It's using biological equipment that originally comes from bacteria. Now, we've already discussed the CRISPR technique on this show before. Check out our episode of July 15, 2019 on our SoundCloud page. Just go to forwardradio.org slash bench talk. Anyway, these biochemical tools that are used to edit DNA using CRISPR Even though they originally come from bacteria, they worked perfectly well on plants, fungi, animals, and yeah, that even includes humans. The researcher does need to provide an RNA template that is complementary to the DNA sequence they want to modify, and then they do need the correct modifying proteins and enzymes, etc. But CRISPR is thought to be a very powerful technique and it is taking gene therapy by storm. In April, scientists at the University of Pennsylvania started using CRISPR to treat cancer. What they do is remove cells from the cancer patient, alter their DNA using CRISPR, and then return those cells back to the bodies of the patients. Then there's a researcher in California using CRISPR to repair the single mutation that causes sickle cell anemia, And there's another lab trying to correct hemophilia with CRISPR. And then there's another that's working on severe combined immunodeficiency disease. It's called SCID disease. And it's often known as the bubble boy disease, where the patient doesn't have a very good immune system. There's a company working to treat blindness with CRISPR. And what they would do there is not even have to remove any cells of the body because the retina is right there 
and very small amount of tissue. So they could just directly alter the DNA in the retina in vivo, right in the person. Now, there are other kinds of gene therapy trials this year, too, not just those involving CRISPR, like the one where they used a DNA vector that's related to the HIV virus that causes AIDS. Here, they're also treating that immunodeficiency disease. And so they take out the bone marrow cells from the patient that's missing in an immune system. They use the HIV vector as a way of carrying the normal version of that gene back into those cells. And then they deliver those corrected cells back to the patient with IV intravenously. Now, these kind of gene therapies are a lot less controversial than what we discussed last week. It was news item number 11, where we were talking about germline gene therapy. There, the idea is to alter the genetic makeup of gametes, like egg cells or sperm cells, or you're genetically altering embryos and then implanting them. Now, that kind of gene therapy is permanent. Those changes are going to be passed on for generations. But here, we're just talking about changing somatic cells, not gamete-forming cells that get carried on to the next generation. Here, we're just talking about making genetic changes to the patient themselves, and those changes die with the patient. So here, instead of prescribing medication or physical therapies or performing surgery or other medical interventions, here we're actually changing the DNA of the patients themselves. Well, the time has come. What is the number one science news story of 2019? It's the first photograph of a black hole. Now, NASA says that, quote, a black hole is a place in space where gravity pulls so much that even light cannot get out. The gravity around a black hole is so strong because matter has been squeezed into a very tiny space. This can happen when a star is dying, for instance. Because no light can get out, people can't see black holes. They're invisible. Unquote. That was NASA. Well, because of this, a lot of experts thought that it would be impossible to actually get an image of a black hole since light can't escape it. But it happened. It was announced in April. The world got to see what a black hole actually looks like. This particular black hole was in a nearby galaxy called M87. It's still 55 million light years from us, though. And it's really quite large, the mass of 6.5 billion of our suns. Now, something this big requires a really large camera to photograph. So what the world's astronomers did back in 2017 is they built a network of eight observatories around the world. They all collaborated in getting this image. The observatories are in Arizona, Hawaii, Mexico, Chile, Spain, and Antarctica. Each observatory collected data from a specific narrow range of wavelengths, and then it was all stitched together with all the other observatory images to create this final product. It took two years of processing all that data and all those images. 
And since the observatories were located on different parts of the globe, the angles of the photographs had to be taken into account, plus the different wavelengths and the different times that the photos were taken. So it was quite an undertaking. And this is why Science Magazine, which is the premier science research journal in the United States, declared this photograph the breakthrough of the year. Now, the center of the image is not really very exciting. Black holes don't let out any light, so it's completely devoid of light. This is the shadow of the black hole. But surrounding the shadow is this bright, fiery ring of light which comes from the hot gases swirling around the hole, but heating up during its violent descent into the black hole. Now, you can do an internet search to see the final image, and we'll link to it on the Facebook page. It sort of looks like a lopsided orange donut, or kind of looks like a fuzzy photograph of a diamond-studded wedding ring. This photograph wasn't just taken to stir our imaginations. It has helped shore up Einstein's general theory of relativity, which predicts the size of the bright ring surrounding the shadow and also predicts how the mass of a black hole can warp space-time. This photo also helps researchers figure out how to estimate the mass of black holes. How fast does a black hole rotate? And its ability to eat objects, do they just keep orbiting the hole or do they actually get sucked into the black hole? I can tell you that this consortium of observatories is not stopping here. They've now grown to 11 observatories around the world. And the next thing they want to do is photograph a much smaller but closer black hole that is in the center of our Milky Way. They also want to take more photographs of this M87 black hole in April of 2020 because they want to monitor how it might change over time. How did the two photographs compare to one another? Eventually, the astronomers even want to make a movie of a black hole so they can see how it changes within a period of one week. To quote an article in Wired.com by Sophia Chen, quote, Everything they've observed so far about M87, its mass and the size of its event horizon, is consistent with Einstein's theory of relativity, but future, more detailed observations could reveal unexpected features. For instance, according to theoretical calculations, if black holes spin fast enough, they form a wormhole in space-time. Future black hole images could help confirm or refute that hypothesis. She quotes a Harvard astrophysicist who says that they're anticipating the day when images are good enough to see a black hole with its associated wormhole. Quote, this is really, really weird science fiction stuff, and we're going to be seeing it, unquote. Well, there you go, the top 50 science stories of 2019, as determined by Discover Magazine. Well, if you've been listening to very many of our episodes, You've probably already heard from our Bench Talk poet, Dr. Leslie Moise. Well, once again, she is commemorating our stories with a poem she wrote specifically for Bench Talk. Here is Leslie Moise's poem. Past, Present, Future Not just a feline fossil, too large for the museum drawer, but bird fossils, ancient human bones. 
plus a city 9,000 years old, matzah, complete with mosaics. Worm conjures image of softness. Do they softly rub away where Dan rock? No. Rockworm fangs spring from a circular maw. Climate change causes increasingly wingless skies, but honeybees can count. Soggy fields on Earth, ice river on Titan. Where, why did rivers vanish on Mars? Vast reaches of space, all unified by water. So much happening on Mars. Drilling, preparations for us to travel there, plus improved navigation on the red planet. Seven times more foreshocks of earthquakes than we'd noticed. Possibility of increased safety from volcanoes as well. Of Elon Musk's many innovations, most exciting contributions, we grow nearer wordless communication, human mind to human mind, and the singularity, human mind to machine. Our understanding of dementia, depression, genomes, and AIDS increasing. We inch closer to communication with comatose patients, hints of potential cures. Black hole where gravity pulls so strongly, even light can't escape visible only by edging halo of light. 2019, a bridge between the ancient past, our tenuous present, and our beguiling future. Thanks to Dr. Moise for this poem. Leslie Moise, that's spelled M-O-I-S-E, is a local author and teacher who's published three books, a novel, a memoir, and a book of poetry. And even though Dr. Moise is busy working on a couple other important book projects right now, I'm glad that she found herself awestruck enough by these stories to honor us with this poem. Thanks, Leslie. Well, another vital member of the Bench Talk team is Professor J. Scott Miller. Now, Scott Miller holds a M.S. degree in physics with a concentration in astronomy, and he also has an M.S. degree in secondary education. He is an associate professor at Maysville Community and Technical College in Maysville, Kentucky, where he teaches and publishes papers in physics, astronomy, and mathematics. Today, Scott's going to tell us more about super spiral galaxies and what they can tell us about general relativity. Take it away, Professor. Scott here. In most science classes, one can hear of the scientific method. As presented, it sometimes seems to be a recipe that can move a collection of facts or observations through some common explanation that becomes accepted with the success of many different tests or experiments. Words like facts, hypothesis, and theory are sprinkled in and collectively provide a hierarchy by which some part of the universe we live in is a bit more understandable than it was before. At the center of the scientific method is testability. To be a scientific hypothesis or theory, it has to be testable. More correctly, it has to be falsifiable. If an idea must be accepted solely on the basis of intuition alone, then it is not a scientific idea. So it is not enough to come up with a good idea explaining how something might work. The idea must be subjected to testing and retesting, holding up to much scrutiny before it might be accepted in the scientific community. And even then, 
the testing will continue. Counter ideas proposed and tested, all with the idea behind it that we will gain deeper understanding of the phenomenon involved. One of the best known theories of physics and astronomy today is Einstein's general theory of relativity. Einstein saw the universe a bit different than many of his fellows of the time, even going back to Sir Isaac Newton. Newton's view of gravity is best summarized by forces between masses. As the mass of one or two objects increases, the pull of gravity between them increases. If the mass of one or both objects decreases, then the gravitational pull between them decreases. Further, Newton understood the distance between any two objects also plays a role, with an increase in separation resulting in a decrease in that gravitational pull between them. Einstein pictured the effects of gravity as the bending of what he termed space-time, the four-dimensional construct he used to picture the universe. Three spatial dimensions and a fourth related to time act in unison to form space-time. In Einstein's explanation, the absence of mass results in a flat space-time, and light or particles moving through it travel in straight lines. But if mass is present, the local space-time becomes warped, and light or particles passing by have their otherwise straight-line paths altered. The more mass at a particular location, the greater the warp, and the more those paths get altered. Since its introduction, General relativity has been used to explain much related to gravitational effects observed in the universe. Applied locally, it actually approaches the result that Newton got with his theory. But in cases where much mass is present, deviations between Newton's theory of gravity and Einstein's become pronounced, generally in the direction of the application of Einstein's theory. Because it has stood up to so much scrutiny, it is the favored theory for explaining gravity phenomenon in science today. Still, other ideas on how gravity works are being proposed. One of these is called Modified Newtonian Dynamics, or MOND for short. MOND was proposed in the early 1980s as an alternative to non-baryonic dark matter. Dark matter is a non-luminous matter that seems to dominate the motion of galaxies, for example. It is observed that galaxies rotate in a way that can be explained as if they reside in a cocoon of this dark matter. Attempts to determine what the makeup of dark matter is remains unfulfilled, although the inability to detect it using current means seems to rule out that it is not made up of ordinary matter. Thus, it is considered non-baryonic. Part of the need to add dark matter to the mix of what makes up the universe comes from the observation of galaxies, specifically rotation of galaxies and mainly spiral galaxies that show evidence of rotation. Our own galaxy rotates in such a way that the sun and stars nearby all orbit our galaxy at about 130 miles per second. That this speed is maintained throughout most of the disk of the galaxy rather than falling off with distance as one would expect if all the matter was what was visible in the galaxy itself has led to the discovery of dark matter and its effect on normal matter via gravity. As with any good scientific theory, Mond makes predictions, Newton's law of gravity, of which Mond is a modification, makes predictions, and the general theory of relativity makes predictions. Scientific observation and experimentation are the arbiter. In results recently published based on observations using the Southern African Large Telescope, also known as SALT, the 5-meter Hale Telescope at Mount Palomar, 
and NASA's Wide Field Infrared Survey Explorer, or WISE, mission, general relativity seems to be vindicated again. The crux of the observations was that the relationship observed for normal spirals between the galaxy's mass and rotation rate holds for what are known as super spirals, spiral galaxies that are much bigger and much more massive than ordinary spirals like our own Milky Way galaxy. Observational work had already shown that spiral galaxies rotate faster than should be possible based on their visible stars alone, explainable by shrouding them in a vast halo of dark matter. Super spiral galaxies significantly exceed the rotation rate one would expect if visible stellar matter was solely responsible for the rate of rotation, as Mond would find. That something else must be necessary to account for the much higher speeds as a new piece of evidence against Mond. The super spiral observations indicate that something beyond Newtonian physics or its modification must be responsible. Though further observations of such galaxies will continue, including studies by NASA's James Webb Space Telescope, the observations of these excessive rotation rates explainable by general relativity simply give this theory a bit more of a foothold in the mind of scientists as to be the proper framework for understanding our universe. That was Professor J. Scott Miller of Maysville Community and Technical College. Thanks much, Scott, and Happy New Year! And since we're still thinking about end-of-the-year stuff, here's a statistic we all need to hear again. There were more mass killings in the United States in 2019 than in any year since the 1970s. A database compiled by the Associated Press, USA Today, and Northeastern University shows that there were 41 mass killings last year. Mass killings are defined as when four or more people are killed, excluding the perpetrator. And of those 41 mass killings last year, 33 involved a gun. That's more than 80%. The second worst year other than last year was in 2006 when there were 38 mass killings instead of the 41 we had last year. At least 211 people were killed in mass killings in the United States last year. The only year that surpasses last year's number of 211 deaths is 2017, when the deadliest mass shooting in U.S. history occurred in Las Vegas. There were 224 people who died that year. Nine of these mass killings last year took place in a public space. That's 22% while others occurred in homes, at the workplace, or at bars. According to the Violence Project, which is a think tank operating out of Minneapolis, Minnesota, mass shootings in places of worship are becoming more frequent, starting in the mid-2000s. And the number of shootings motivated by religious hate have increased most dramatically in the last five years. According to them, nearly half of the U.S. states experienced a mass killing last year. Kentucky escaped that, but in February of 2019, there was a shooting in Elizabethtown, Kentucky, by allegedly one man that killed two and wounded two. I can tell you that the rise in mass killings is occurring at a time when the rates of general homicides are actually going down. 
James Densley, a sociologist and co-founder of The Violence Project, says that this rise in mass violence is partially a byproduct of an angry and frustrated time and notes that crime tends to go in waves. In the 1970s and 80s, we saw a number of serial killers. The 90s were marked by school shootings and child abductions, and the early 2000s were dominated by terrorism. This seems to be the age of mass shootings, Dinsley says. Dinsley and criminologist James Fox at Northeastern University expresses worries about the contagion effect of these mass killings. This is the idea that one mass killing fuels other mass killings. There was a research paper published in PLOS 1 back in 2015 that showed this contagion effect. Its primary author was a researcher at Arizona State University who had spent most of her career modeling the spread of infectious diseases like Ebola and influenza and sexually transmitted diseases. She wanted to know whether cases of mass violence spread contagiously just like in a disease outbreak. And lo and behold, when they modeled it, they found that indeed there's significant evidence of contagion for both mass killings and school shootings. Each shooting appears to encourage other shootings. The more contagious shooting events appear to be the ones that received the most media coverage. And what's the time frame within which you're most likely going to see contagious acts of mass violence? Two weeks. Interestingly, the same kind of contagion is seen with highly publicized suicides. When actor-comedian Robin Williams committed suicide in 2014, that was followed by a 10% increase in the rate of suicide around the country. And you're talking 1,841 people, mostly impacting males between the ages of 30 and 44. And speaking of suicides, Dr. Jillian Peterson, a psychologist and co-founder of The Violence Project, interviewed surviving mass shooters who were in jail and found that 80% of them were suicidal at the time of the shooting. Now, the vast majority of people who are suicidal don't attack others, but in very rare cases, a tiny minority of people considering suicide do go down the path of violence towards others. She has come to think of mass shootings as a form of suicide. She says, quote, They're angry, horrible suicides that take a lot of people with them. The shooter never intends to live. There's never a getaway plan. Typically, they think of this as their kind of last moment, unquote. Other researchers have documented the same thing in their studies of active shooters. Peter Langeman, a clinical psychologist in Allentown, Pennsylvania, says, quote, about half of the school shooters I've studied died by suicide in their attack. It's often a mixture of severe depression and anguish and desperation driving them to end their own lives, unquote. Vulnerable individuals who are also angry and already considering violence may read or watch the news of a mass shooting and then identify with the shooter or even be inspired by them. And access to guns and a venue allows them to follow that script. Dr. Peterson says, quote, There is this element of wanting notoriety in death that you don't have in life. So when one happens and it makes headlines 
and the names and pictures are everywhere and the world is talking about it, that becomes something that other people see as a possibility for themselves. Peterson and other researchers who study mass shootings think the media should avoid showing the shooter's images and dwelling on their life histories and motives. She says, quote, the fact that we give them that notoriety is problematic. Well, that's the show this week. Thank you for listening to Bench Talk, The Week in Science. We think the world is a fascinating place, and science is a good way to explore it. Science truly empowers all of us. To listen to any of our older episodes, just go to forwardradio.org or check out our Facebook page. We're also available on iTunes and Google Play. Now, this show is broadcast on Forward Radio every Monday at 7.30 p.m., that's Eastern Time, 11.30 a.m. every Tuesday, and 7.30 a.m. every Wednesday. Thank you for listening to WFMP 106.5 FM, your grassroots, volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station here in Louisville, Kentucky, where there is still a little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you.